Access to top performing managers in the venture capital and growth equity spaces can be unattainable for most and elusive for the rest. In this episode, Kevin talks with Aram Verdian at Accolade Partners. At Accolade, they specialize in constructing a portfolio of hard-to-access funds in both venture capital and growth equity. This approach may change the attitude of many who view a fund of funds as something negative. Well, Aram, I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's always a wonderful to have a partner of ours, especially on the uh, the private investment side of the house, to come talk about what you do and what makes your business unique. So if you could just give us a little bit of background on yourself and accolade and history of the firm to start off with, that would be wonderful. Yeah, I would be happy to. Thank you for having me on, Kevin. Uh, it's been great to partner with you and your team over the past few funds. We as a firm, we're Accolade is a fund of funds. We've been around for 22 years now. We're managing close to $4.5 in assets. Our clients are endowments, foundations, family offices, firms such as yourselves, pension funds, consulting firms. And we do a couple of things at Accolade, but at its core, we do really two things, early stage venture and growth equity. And when we say early stage venture, we refer to really early pre-seed seed series A, uh, stage focused managers. When we say growth equity, think of companies that are bootstrapped, capital efficient, have never raised capital before. They're raising one round and then selling to strategic and financial buyers in a few years. So it's not venture. Uh, our growth equity is a little different from venture. We've been doing that for close to 22 years. And over the past four years, we started looking at the blockchain space and launched a dedicated practice there as well. So really, the three things we do today is early stage venture, which is more on the traditional tech and healthcare side, growth equity, tech and healthcare, and then blockchain as well. Uh, we have a team of close to 20 people based in Washington, D.C. Um, I'm one of the partners at the firm, have been at the firm now for over 10 years, in between went to business school and came back. Yeah, I'll pause there and can go deeper on anything. Yeah, I, th- I think it's wonderful. And, and I love your part of the story with Accolade as a partner at, at how you you were at the firm and you went away to GSB and then came right back. I think that yeah, says a I lot. I took a two-year vacation and came back. Yeah, heck of a vacation, huh? So it was a easy cruising on that vacation, wasn't it? <laughs> it was uh, It was probably actually, like I, I joke vacation, but it was probably the busiest time of my life, but it never felt like work. Um yeah. I got to we. Uh, I ran the venture capital club at Stanford, which is probably one of the like the epicenters of in in, in the Bay Area to be at the intersection of all the talent that's coming out of Stanford, but also all, all the venture capital firms. We started a company out of the Stanford Design School, and I got to work at one of our managers, Andreessen Horvitz, on the fintech mm-hmm. investing side. So it was great to get that direct exposure by being there on the West Coast versus being on the East Coast and just investing in these firms. So I think. That first-hand exposure over two years, plus getting the education at Stanford, was was really great. That's wonderful. Well, I want to go back, and and I'm going to hit on it first, since you said it right off the bat that you're a fund of funds. Um, I would say that typically in the allocators' world, that can really be uh, a quote-unquote dirty word sometimes, because there are a lot of people in your space that, um, at least from the allocator side, from our side, feel that you know the fee structure uh, is overbearing for the end end recipient of the benefit of the fund. And then uh, sometimes it's really just an asset gathering tool as, as, as opposed to a really an investment tool for the families. And our partnership with Accolade 
is because you really shattered that in, in our view. You you shattered that the stigma that comes along with the fund to fund. So if you could just share us how you how do you put together the fund to funds and what what are you doing to break that that stigma of high cost fund to fund structure? Yeah, I actually agree with you broadly with the concept of fund to funds. I mean, I would really ask every limited partner, everyone who is considering a fund of funds, why are you doing that? I think there's a few reasons why one should consider and invest in a fund of funds. One is access and access to managers that and funds that you yourself cannot access. I mean, they're oversubscribed. They've been close to new limited partners. They've historically had great returns. They raised similar size funds. So there's no room for them to add any new LPs and their fundraise is fairly quick. To me, that's one of the large reasons to get access. And if you double-click into specific sub-areas within private equity, look at venture capital and go back 40, 50 years, there's this concept of distribution of returns uh, that go to the power law. Essentially, what that means is that you look at the market cap creation over the past few decades in venture capital, you'll see that the top 1% of the companies generate the majority of the returns. And if there are thousands of venture capital firms, there's only about even less than 1% of those firms that capture that 1% of companies at the earliest stages, and they lead those rounds. So you can see that similar power law dynamic at the company level as you would on the fund level, where the top 1% of the firms generate the majority of the returns in the industry. In fact, I always say the average and the median venture capital firm does not generate good returns. You're going to get sub 10% type returns, typically, if you're investing in an average firm. And instead of doing that, you should just invest in the public markets, not get locked up for 10 years, and you'll probably do better over a 10, 20-year period. So power law distribution has actually amplified that uh, concept of access. So if you're with the top 1%, it's hard to get access to them. As, and if you as a fund of funds can get access to them, that's a really good, compelling reason to consider a fund of funds. But that's not enough. This, I mean, it's, it's important, but it's not sufficient. Second reason is if I'm a client and I'm thinking of doing a fund of funds, I have to ask myself, can I do this myself? Do I have an in-house team that can replicate a similar portfolio, be in this asset class every single day? So most of our clients, they do public equities, they do many geographies, they do credit, they do real estate, and then 5-10% of their time they're spending on venture capital and maybe 5-10% on growth equity. We're spending 110% of our time in just singularly focused in this lane, only in the US. And why only in the US? Not because there's not, not good opportunities in Europe and Asia, but because we think to do a geography right, you need to be domiciled there. When there's a new fund getting started, you want to be the first ones to know about that. And we don't have that competitive advantage in Europe. We don't have that in Asia. We don't have resources there. But we do feel like we have that in the US. So if you have a team that's singularly focused on a specific sub-asset class within private equity, in this case, venture growth equity, and they know all the firms and they nail selection, diligence, both from an investment, operational, legal standpoint, and they put together a portfolio of the best X number of firms, I think that's another compelling reason to do a fund of funds. So I, very introspectively, I would, as a client, would always say, can you do this yourself? And if the answer is yes, then you shouldn't be using a fund of funds. And if you have an in-house dedicated team, no need to use the fund of funds. Third is portfolio construction. This is more of an accolade comment versus other fund of funds. So a lot of fund of funds out there will raise lots of capital, billion, two, three billion. And 
the larger the AUM, the more index-like you're going to look. Why is that? Well, I mentioned early on that access is really important. You want to get access to the top 1% of the firms. And usually the, that access is limited. You can't just go to a top five firm and say, instead of 5 million, give me 50 million. They're access constrained. So if I'm raising 2, 3 billion or more for a fund of funds, I really can't just do that top 1%. I have to have 30, 40, 50 funds in that portfolio. And even if I'm good and I got access to some of the best firms, I'm going to have second tier. I'm going to have third tier firms. And what happens is your best firms end up getting diluted by the second tier, third tier managers. I start chasing more AUM and larger funds than performance. What we do at Accolade, and what this is what we've done since inception of the firm, is run a fairly concentrated portfolio. Generally, our fund of funds do not exceed more than 20 firms over a two-year period. We want every firm, if they do really well, to have a meaningful impact on our overall fund of funds. You know, you hear a lot of the times venture fund is a 10x, it's a 15x, 20x. We have those in our portfolio. And when that happens, we want them to return at least half, if not more, of our whole fund of funds. You can't say that in a huge billion-dollar fund of funds that has 50 line items, and they write a $5 million investment in it on a $2 billion fund of funds. If that 10x is, doesn't move the needle on your fund. If 5 million, 10 million, 10x is for us, that's very meaningful for our fund of funds. So we construct smaller fund of funds and have a concentrated portfolios of what we, we believe are the best of breed and hardest to access managers. We actually run this analysis two ways. What is the impact of an individual fund on our fund of funds? But also, what is the impact of an individual portfolio company on our fund of funds? Mm -hmm. In every one of our fund of funds, we end up with 400 or so companies. We want the top 5% to be really meaningful to us. And we ran this analysis. In five of our mature fund of funds in a row, the top 10 portfolio companies return more than our whole fund of funds. These are companies, not funds. So it says two things. One is we selected the right managers, but secondly, we concentrated in those managers so that when they had a home run, it meaningfully impacted not only their fund, but our fund of funds as well. So I would say, to summarize, access, selection, and having that in-house team that can do all the work and select a portfolio. And three is portfolio construction and fund size. All of what I just said boils down to returns. At the end of the day, if, you, if anyone wants to do fund of funds, ask yourselves and be very intellectually honest, am I going to outperform on a net basis by paying an extra fee and carry to this fund of funds versus investing directly? When we compare our performance, we don't compare it to other fund of funds. We compare it to the direct benchmarks, mm -hmm. as if you're investing directly in private equity, as if you're investing directly in venture capital. Our goal is to be top quartile against direct benchmarks, not just fund of funds. Because if we are indeed selecting the top 1%, that power law distribution should help us be top quartile, not just on a fund of funds basis, but on a direct basis. Well, so I think, there. Yeah, thank you. That I very succinctly put a lot of what we've talked about over the years into a sentence, uh, one number of sentences here. I would also say one thing that throws a lot of people for a loop when I talk about accolade is that in the fiduciary world, you're either looking at concentration or you're looking at diversification. And when I tell them we're looking at both in one investment, their eyes kind of roll back in their head and they, they kind of say, what are you talking about? And it goes back to the power law distribution. It goes back to venture, specifically venture is the few, if not the only asset class that actually has manager persistence. So in other yes. words, the successful people continue to be successful in this asset class. 
And so as a fiduciary and a, uh, an allocator of assets, we want to get access to those managers and get access to many of them, not just one of them, so that we are concentrating with the best managers, but diversifying across that upper quartile of best managers. And Accolade is one of the few groups that can uniquely provide that type of access for us. And it's been very, very fun to, to watch so far, I have to admit. Yeah, Kevin, I, I want to say something on the persistence of returns. And this goes back to the first two points I made on access and selection. I actually think to do venture right, you need to have a barbell approach, which is you and I can probably name the top five firms today in venture capital. That's the persistence of returns because those firms have had incredible track records, vintage year after vintage year. They have been able to generate the top 1% of returns. They have a track record for helping companies to go from zero to successful IPO. The next generation of leading entrepreneurs, they want to work with those firms. A lot of the persistence of returns comes from that. The best entrepreneurs self-select working with the best firms mm. because they've had a track record of doing so. And it's very hard to shuffle that top five over time because if you have done well, as long as your team is not blowing up, as long as you're not raising massively bigger funds, if your strategy is staying consistent, you've done well in the past and you continue to add value and scale your portfolio, the next generation best entrepreneurs are going to want to work with you. So that's the part of the barbell. The second part, though, is emerging smaller managers. And this actually happens a lot in the seed stage. So when we talk about seed, you really have to go back to 2008, 2009. And back then, seed really wasn't a thing. Uh, but what happened was AWS happened. Distribution became much cheaper online. And instead of needing to raise many millions of dollars to build a beta product, get some early validation and customers, you needed to raise maybe less than a million or close to it. And so you started to see a number of seed firms emerge in 2008, 2009 that took on that void of pre-product market fit, smaller rounds before the Series A is being raised. Today, there's over a thousand seed funds in the US. I'm not exaggerating. There's over a thousand wow. seed funds. They focus on pre-seed seed. More than half of them are in the Bay Area. And that whole sub-asset class within venture is proliferated. Selection here is very important. And if you invest in the right small firms early on at Fund 1, Fund 2, who have a track record to understand portfolio construction, who have great reputation, because of how small their funds are, how early they invest in companies, you can generate even better returns than the established mm. access-constrained firms can. So I'll, I'll give you an example. So take a firm that's $50 million in size. And they run a concentrated portfolio where they get 15 to 20% ownership. And one of those outcomes is a billion dollar outcome. That's going to be three to four X their fund. Now, if you have a much larger fund, you need 10 billion plus outcomes. And if you are a seed firm that has that $10 billion outcome, now that you're looking at 10X plus returns, we have multiple underlying small seed funds that have exceeded our expectations and they've generated those level of returns. So to do venture right, you have to get access to the brand names that have that staying power, but it's equally important to fish in this pond of many firms that are smaller and find the leading emerging managers that can actually generate significant outsized returns. And how do you find those managers in that seemingly you know, undifferentiated world? It all comes from our network. So one of the things we do and have been doing for 20 plus years is we add value to our managers. 
whether we pass on a manager or we are investing with a manager, we help them with portfolio construction. We make introductions for them. We'll help their portfolio companies with recruiting. Uh, we'll be advising them on hiring people, thinking about compensation, thinking about how to manage pacing, advisory board issues, et cetera. We want to be in a category where if there is a new firm that's getting started, what are you going to do if you want to raise money? Will you talk to other firms and ask them, how do they raise money? Who should I talk to? We want to be consistently on the list when a GP is asked, who are the top three LPs I should talk to? Who are going to add value to me? Who have a reputation in the space of being early and who really get the space? Part of the reason we can do that is because we're concentrated. We have only a handful of venture relationships and we focus and we add value to them. We're one of their strongest partners. When there's a new firm getting started, we're usually one of the first few to see that firm. So we have a first look at that. So most of, if you look back historically at how we have access to firms, it comes from other firms. It's not very different when a company is raising around, by the way. If I'm a CEO, I'm raising around the financing. I'm talking to other CEOs and asking for their opinion who the best investors are. It's very similar in the LP world. Gotcha. Well, I think giving the overview of the venture space and how Accolade approaches it really describes how you're doing things differently there. I think one thing that uh, Adam, who is our CIO here at Cenocera Capital, and I have been very attracted to is how you approach the growth equity space and the type of companies that you invest in there. So if you could give us an overview of that and, and dive in a little deeper, that would be wonderful as well. Yeah, I think growth equity is uh, immensely underappreciated asset class within private equity. And when most people think of growth equity, unfortunately, they think of late stage venture. So pre-IPO rounds, uh, rounds that are raised one to two years before a company has to go public in billion plus valuations. That's not where our growth equity is. Think of a company in the Midwest somewhere that has never raised any capital. That founder has bootstrapped their business to 5 million plus in annual recurring revenues. They're growing fast. They're selling mission-critical software with high net retention, high gross margins. And they're in a position and they're at a juncture where they think about taking one round of outside capital, either minority or giving control, to accelerate their growth or to maintain that growth and professionalize the business, increase sales and marketing, bring some board members, augment the team, and then look for an exit in three to five years. They don't have to raise more capital after that first round of financing. They can be turned on profitability if they want to, or they are already profitable. They continue growing fast, if not faster, post the investment. And they usually sell to bigger private equity firms. The bigger private equity firms, I mean, depending on the data source you look at, have over a trillion in dry powder, to invest in software companies. Mm -hmm. So we invest at a, in small funds, typically sub 500 million in size, that target companies that are doing five to 15 million in revenues. When they get these companies to 30 to 50 million in revenues, these are very attractive acquisition targets for the big private equity firms. So the mantra for us in growth equity is a three to five X in three to five years. That's what we're looking for. A lot of our managers have done far better than that in a lower timeframe. You're not reliant on the IPO markets. These companies don't have to raise more capital and it's far more consistent sales to larger private equity firms. In an environment like we're in today, where we potentially will go into a recessionary environment, growth equity is positioned very well. No need for more financing, profitable companies, mission-critical software, continue selling to large enterprise, exit market is bigger PE, don't have to go public. And 
we are one of the few fund of funds that has a dedicated product around growth equity. Mm-hmm. And we've also combined our early stage venture practice with growth equity, which we think is very complementary from a returns on the liquidity standpoint. Venture will give you that outsized multiple, but it will take seven to 10 years. Growth equity is going to give you low risk, high IRR, three to five X in three to five years, and really complement the venture side of the portfolio. But thank you for sharing that. It's certainly understanding the combination of the two is is unique. I think a lot of people will just stay, pick one sleeve and stay in it as well. Let's do one more step forward into something very unique that you're doing and that's your blockchain funds. Um, you know, we were talking yesterday about the success of blockchain one, that blockchain two has been raised and being deployed, potentially going to see some more uh, from that side. So start from the higher level, give us the thesis of, of the blockchain fund at Accolade and what is your approach and what makes that unique as well? Yeah, we got into the space, into the blockchain space four or five years ago, and it was through managers like Andreessen Horowitz and others that we were very close to. We backed them early on. We backed their first dedicated blockchain fund. It was really not until 2019 that we decided to start a dedicated practice. In, in blockchain. And there were a number of indicators for that. The first one was talent. If you looked at the universities like MIT, Stanford, Berkeley, the number one demanded course was cryptography and distributed systems. If you looked at Web2 companies, like the bigger ones like Facebook, uh, Google, Amazon, they were leaving. A lot of the engineers and executive talent was leaving to either start or join blockchain companies. In fact, in recent Horowitz, in 2019, they had this uh, bootcamp called Crypto School. In four weeks, they had, I believe, thousands of applications from credible entrepreneurs building companies. So we saw significant talent go into the space, both technical and executive, to launch or join blockchain companies. Secondly, the manager landscape changed dramatically. Back in 2016, 2017, you and I can count on one hand the number of institutional venture capital firms that had dedicated blockchain strategies. That really changed in 2019. There were spinouts from the firms you would recognize, like a Sequoia, Lightspeed, Union Square, and recent Horvitz Benchmark. And we thought that one of the most effective ways for our limited partners to get access to blockchain is through a diversified portfolio of the best 10 to 15 early stage managers. We'll diversify by stage, geography, subsector within blockchain, and also vintage years, and offer that diversified exposure to our limited partners. We actually believe fund of funds here is even more effective as a, as a tool to get exposure to than in other traditional pockets of private equity. The reason no. for that is we're so early. You really mm-hmm. don't want to take single manager risk in this asset class yeah, because they're focused on a specific subsector, specific geography. And depending on the person you ask, they'll say we're in the ni- 80s, we're in the 90s relative to the internet. We believe blockchain is the next computing platform that we can talk about why. But we're so early that taking a fund of funds approach across the best managers, where we actually have a team that does all the selection, that's looked at over 300 funds and selected 15. It goes back to access is also important. The best firms today are close to new limited partners, but selection is also very difficult in the space. So you want to take a diversified approach and invest with a team that knows what they're doing. And we are one of the largest, if not the largest institutional investor in the blockchain space. We manage close to a billion in assets now dedicated to investing in blockchain funds. 
we were early investors in some of the best firms that are now close to limited partners, and we're usually the largest LPs with them. Gotcha. I asked you to start at a 30,000 foot view. Let's move it up to like spy plane level view, maybe 50, <laughs> 60,000 feet here for some people on the podcast who may not quite understand the difference between blockchain, coins, NFTs, and such. And really, let's, if you just give an overview for everyone on the, the ecosystem there, but then talk about why blockchain out of all of the pieces of the crypto universe that you could choose from. Why yeah. does that create a compelling opportunity for an investor? Oh, this might be the last question, Kevin, on the podcast. <laughs> um, let me start at a higher level. So if you think about what blockchain companies are doing, at their core, their business model decentralizes both governance and economics of that company. To understand that, let's go back and actually think about how tech companies have been created over the past two decades. So Think of the big tech companies, think of the companies you today use on your iPhone app store. Their model has been fairly predictable. It's they've attracted customers, third-party providers. Their network affects businesses where their service becomes more valuable as more people join the platform. They own the data on the platform. And then over time, they start looking a lot more like monopolies. They control the rent on the platform. They're the ones extracting the economic is essentially incentive. And they control the data. They control it's a closed. Uh, source system where they control the third parties, everyone who is pretty much a constituent and operating in that platform. And there are many examples of closed systems that have kicked out third parties because it wasn't advantageous for them to stay on. There are many examples of these large, massive companies that charge 30, 40% just to be on their platform. So more and more folks have realized these centralized tech companies are stifling innovation. And there's a lot of challenges where they extract all the rent, all the economics at the expense of all the participants on that platform. Well, what blockchain does is actually create a decentralized version of that. And you can do that by actually putting the value of the company in a decentralized model through the token, where all the participants of that company, the suppliers, consumers, third-party providers, they get to participate in the upside of that company. If I told that Uber driver, every time you drive for Uber, you're going to earn a fraction of Uber tokens. And by the way, essentially here, the token would be analogous to equity. And as, your val as the value of Uber goes up, as there's more rides on the platform, so would the value of your tokens. That driver is now far more incentivized to stay on the platform than to shift to Lyft. The token model is really important because for the first time, you're allowing value and control to now be given to the users and contributors of the platform, as opposed to the centralized companies. And on top of that, it's open source. This is where the blockchain piece comes in. It is open source, which means you can freely build on top of it. Today, if I'm one of the best developers and I have created an amazing navigation system, I can't do anything on Uber because it's a closed system. Mm. But the open source version, the blockchain version of Uber, anyone can build on top of. So composability becomes a really important feature here in addition to the decentralized economics. Customer acquisition is also very interesting here. Your customer acquisition tool becomes the equity of the company, not giving money to Google and ad spend. Hmm. You're actually incentivizing people to stay on the platform because they're actual owners in that company. That provides for far more organic exponential flywheel and virality than the traditional model. So take that mental model. You can apply that to many different areas within the economy. 
decentralized finance, financial services, which in this case in DeFi. So essentially take any financial activity, build it on the blockchain, no intermediaries, offer it to general populations. There are companies that have achieved a billion in run rate with the model I just mentioned in decentralized finance in less than two years. Wow. There is a company that did a billion in run rate on 11 million of capital raised in the private markets, growing really fast. I mean, just think about that. I've raised 11 million in capital and I'm doing a billion in run rate revenues. That's no wild. money has been spent on customer acquisition. That's the capital efficient model because you're actually giving equity back to the users mm. instead of saying, hey, I'm going to IPO one day. My capital will be 80% VCs, 20% management team. And all the upside will stay on that cap table in a concentrated fashion. In a decentralized model, more, more than 50% of the company is generally given to the actual users of that platform. Mm. So you're creating significant alignment with the users. So, and you can apply that to many different areas. So you, me you mentioned NFTs, and there's this whole area of like arts and collectibles and NFTs and all these JPEGs that are selling for a million plus dollars. I, I, I can't comment on that. A lot of that is speculation, 99% plus yeah. is speculation. Some of that will probably work. Yeah, or, or money laundering. One of the or other. money laundering, but like, <laughs> I, I, I can't, uh, that's not venture investing as much yeah. as it is more speculative. But think about what an NFT does. Let's define what an NFT is. A non-fungible token is a unique way to represent a digital file. It's minted by the creator. That information is forever registered on the blockchain and it becomes a digital passport of that blockchain. It actually makes it possible for me as a creator, a musician, to retain ownership of my work across the internet. No one can dispute that anymore. And the benefit is, as a creator, I can now sell directly to my audience mm. and collect royalties on the blockchain every time the work is resold or a song is listened to. As a customer, I don't have to go through a centralized auction house, through a centralized intermediary to get access to this product. And as a developer, I can freely build infrastructure and marketplaces on top of it. So think about music as, for example, like there are companies that are using NFT technology that allow musicians to partner with their audience to bootstrap their early work. And the audience actually gets collective ownership in the work of those artists through royalty streams that are on the blockchain. Think of in-game assets. If you're buying a sword in a centralized game, when you leave that game, that you've lost that sword or whatever item you bought in that game. But if you had an NFT wrapped around it, the ownership of that in-game item would belong to you on an open source blockchain. I can create a secondary market around it, and I can take it from a game to another gaming ecosystem. So NFT applications have that same decentralized business model, whether you apply it to music, royalties, in-game assets. And I think there's still NFTs is only about a year, year and a half old as a concept. We're very early into thinking about the use cases for NFTs here. Yeah, I would agree. I think you and I talked about it as well. You look at the blockchain and just being in the business that, that I am in, I look a lot of, I see a lot of in the fintech space. And I think that blockchain ends up eventually replacing 90, 95% of insurance underwriters. You know, something that is done on a repetitive verification process that it just basically goes down to a checkpoint person as yep. opposed to an army. You look at actuaries, you know, things like that. All of that data eventually gets into the blockchain and, and becomes verifiable without the use of, of quote unquote human computing power to, to make those decisions. Um, yep. 
No, that's right. And I, I will say, look, there's been a lot of speculation in blockchain over the past two years. There's a lot of, in a low to no interest rate environment, there have been a lot of copycat projects that have been created that have no use cases, no revenues, no real product. There have been, there's been a lot of bad behavior broadly. We can talk about it and go in detail on that. But we do believe this model is working. There's real use cases across consumer applications, NFTs, gaming, uh, financial services. The infrastructures blockchain has also developed quite a lot. And we believe the most important internet products will be created through these decentralized token models over the next few decades. Uh, timing of that is obviously more variable, but what we look for, and in a bear market in 2018, when the crypto market was down 85, 90%, there actually wasn't any traction. There was nothing in DeFi, no NFTs, no gaming, really the infrastructure wasn't as well developed. And you saw startup and developer activity go up. So a bear market that we're in right now is the best time to build. It actually weeds out a lot, a lot of the speculators and the folks who are building real products who are missionaries, not mercenaries, who want to stay in it for a long time and build a product that will have an actual use case and product market fit, continue building through this environment. So the best talent stays and continues building. So we believe, if anything, the best time to invest in venture blockchain is in a recessionary environment. And, you know, depending on the indicator you look at, I mean, I would say that we're probably going to be in a recession over the next two years. How and to what extent is TBD? Yeah. Just had uh, came back from a lunch earlier today and had this conversation uh, with one of our CoGP real estate managers over lunch. Is that this is the the ideal time, especially as we're heading into the recession, to be allocating capital to individuals like yourself because that way the dry powder is available to go when the valuations make sense. So we'll touch last on evaluations and then uh, you know where we're seeing the movement of valuations, uh, you know both growth equity and in the venture space. And then the last question, after we get done with that, we'll just, uh, if you could just tell us what's next for Accolade, you know, what's on the horizon beyond that. So let's start with valuations, you know, making their way back from company to uh, capital allocator land. I mean, valuations in the venture land have been pretty brutal. Like it's, I would say there's going to be a very severe correction. Part of it has to do with the Fed and what happened over the past decade, part of it has to do with the significant dry powder that's been in the space. But companies were able to raise good companies. These aren't like companies that don't have good products. They have great products, high net retention. They're growing fast with strong teams in a big addressable market. They were able to raise at 30, 50, sometimes 100 times revenue multiples. If you look today at the public markets for cloud SaaS, go to the Bessemer Cloud Index, you'll see that the highest growth segment has corrected from 20 to 30 times revenues to under 10. So there's been a 60, 70% type level correction in valuations in the public markets. You should take that number and apply it to the private markets in late stage. You don't necessarily see that correction yet because a lot of these companies don't have to raise another round of funding. Mm -hmm. And these aren't necessarily bad companies, but there's going to be a significant valuation correction in the later stages that has happened over the past two years. Early stage as far is better insulated, obviously. Obviously, they'll, they'll be impacted if there's a valuation correction, but their entry point is far lower, sub-100, yeah. sub-50 million dollar valuation. If they led rounds, they're still going to be in a good shape. That's where we focus. And then growth equity, as I mentioned, it's not venture. Our growth equity is bootstrapped capital efficient companies. This valuation environment in venture doesn't affect them as much. 
they're, they're, they're selling to bigger private equity. There is significant dry powder. And on the buy, they will benefit from this environment because instead of buying for five to seven times revenues, they're now buying for three to five. Yeah. So in general, I do think in a bear market right now that we're in and tra- there's less deals that are getting done. So late stage venture, you're only raising capital if you have to raise or you're the top 1% of companies that can still raise and get an up round. In mm. The in-between is not raising because it's not beneficial for you. Early stage deals are still getting done because VCs have dry powder, although that's slowed down. And growth equity is also slowed down, Just, but those we expect that to continue in a steady fashion. Another thing to consider is talent in these later stage venture-backed companies. So if you joined one of these late stage companies in the last two years and your stock options are pegged pretty close to the last valuation, I would be worried because you you might have to wait many years to be in the money on those stock options mm-hmm. unless the company voluntarily wants to reprice their options to incentivize folks to stay long-term at the company. So there's many dynamics at play here, but I think unlike the dot-com bubble, we do think these companies are strong companies. They have great teams. They have good product market fit, but it's going to be quite a valuation exercise to bring down the multiples and bring down the valuations they raised that over the last two years. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, what can we expect out of Accolade moving forward? We're pretty boring, Kevin. I, you should <laughs> expect the same thing we've been doing. We've been doing early stage venture since inception of the firm. We're going to continue doing that. Our goal is to select the best 20 managers every two years in our fund of funds, half venture, yeah. half growth equity, and 10 to 15 on the blockchain side. I don't expect we'll do anything different over the next few years. Um, well, we're, if, raising if... Our next, we're raising our next set of funds. But I will say, if you look at our 08 fund, which was, took us a long time to raise and we deployed it in 2009, 10, 11, that fund is our best fund of funds. Yeah. Like, incredible return. And I do think we will most likely be in a position to take advantage of a similar valuation environment for the set of funds we're raising now. Yeah, for sure. Well, I will say this. If, um, if the returns you produce over the history of the firm are boring, we're happy to be a partner with you in a boring business uh, for a very long time. So- Part of the reason we have generated those returns is because we have elected to stay boring. We've elected to stay small and consistent and not grow our AUM not get it above our skis. And I think that's served well for us. We were returns driven first. Very much so. Well, Aram, thank you so much for carving some time out this afternoon here at end of your day in Washington, DC. We really appreciate it. We appreciate the partnership and uh, all of the resources that we get to share with you as well. It's certainly helpful to us and our families that we serve. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me on, Kevin. Really grateful for our partnership. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.sinaceracapital.com. Sinacera Capital is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Sinacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. 
All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, or completeness of, or liability for, decisions based on such information, and it should not be relied on as such. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. These documents may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.